Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. I always have a great wrestling match with microphones, and whoever follows me is usually just sharing points off the top of their head. That was a little, yeah, never mind. Anyhow, great to be here. I'm excited for the chance to come and share. I always enjoy coming to Grace, and it's been a privilege for me. I don't know how many years it's been now since I first came, but over the course of that time, I've visited with you guys a lot in a variety of contexts, and it always feels a little bit like coming back home. So thank you for, for having me. If you have your Bible, do turn to Ephesians chapter 4, because that's where we will be kind of hanging out uh, this morning. I've spent the last couple years of my life talking to people about talking to people. Uh, and the reason for that is that it seems like, particularly in recent years, we've become kind of bad at talking to each other. If you were listening as Ephesians 4 was read, and there was all these wonderful phrases like being kind and tender-hearted and forgiving one another, doesn't that just sound like talk radio? Doesn't that just sound like the conversations that people have all around you? And you suddenly realize, gosh, no, it doesn't. So there seems to be something kind of broken about us in the, in the context of the way we, we talk to each other. And I was chatting with Dave Gunlock about the series you've been in uh, called, uh, well, so Kingdom, pra I think we started with Kingdom Parables and then we're doing Kingdom Practices and kind of things related to spiritual disciplines. And I said, you know, Dave, I'd actually like to talk about the spiritual discipline of conversation, of being able to actually to communicate with one another. And there's a little bit more church history, there's a little bit more biblical context to that discipline than you might actually think. You might just think, hey, Rick's just, you know, got a thing for conversation, so he's going to baptize that as a spiritual discipline too. Well, there's more than that actually going on here. Uh, and obviously my concern is that the evidence of that is that we haven't really been doing it well. So I've been involved in what we call the Winsome Conviction Project at Biola, um, and that's what I mean. I've been talking about this for the last couple of years, but it was enough of a kind of a crisis, both on campus and in culture, that we decided we actually needed to do a, an active project for working on that. Now, that was also the title of the book that I wrote with my uh, co-author, Tim Muehlhoff. And just a little FYI for you guys at Grace, the second book came from the men's conference I did for you guys about the first book, Winsome Persuasion, and I was chatting, I think it was to Scott Carpenter, actually, 
one of you guys at uh, lunch, and we were talking, wasn't some persuasion about how do you talk to the non-Christian world and how, what happens when you have kind of conflicting convictions about the way we should operate and how can you persuade people across those boundaries and things like that. And he's smiling and nodding his head, and then he goes like, Rick, that isn't a problem between us and the outside world. That's a problem right here within our church. Um, and I, I, he was probably including you guys, but he was definitely referring to the church as a whole. And I realized as he said that, that is exceptionally accurate. And particularly even since then, in the last three to four years, we have become increasingly antagonistic in the way we speak with one another, uh, even within the church. A kind of snarky guy said about conversations that most conversations are simply monologues delivered in the presence of a witness. Um, and, and yeah, you can see the truth in that, right? The only thing I might add to that is that we're surprised how often it's a hostile witness. And the interesting thing is how often we're unaware that it might be a hostile witness. And that is what's become particularly problematic at church, right? Because you think, even if you're doing one of those monologue conversations, you're thinking at least they'll be nodding your head and agreeing with you. But lo and behold, you discovered that you may suddenly have been talking to a hostile witness, a person who really doesn't see things the way you do. And how do you solve this? Well, we could just say, let's just avoid talking about matters of conviction. Let's not talk about contentious issues. Uh, instead of having a, a winsome conviction project, why don't you have a run from conviction project? Flee from conviction. Uh, if a conviction's coming, just shut the doors and it won't get in. Uh, and the bottom line is that doesn't work. Why? Because it's exactly through our convictions that we express our devotion to Christ. So what I've done is spent a lot of time recently thinking, how do we form our convictions well and how do we communicate them well? And the thing I've discovered is that usually the worst communicated convictions are often communicated badly because we have formed them poorly. We haven't thought through them well, and therefore as we begin to talk about it, we begin to realize it may not be as well supported as we think, and then if someone has the audacity to point that out, then things get testy, and it gets a little ugly, and you suddenly realize the enemy to peace and harmony is not a conviction, but rather an ill-formed conviction, a poorly thought-through conviction. Why is that so important relative to conversation? Because the exact way we make our convictions better is by having good conversations with one another about them. To talk to someone and have the freedom to have them kind of probe and plug that. Well, you know, where do you draw that from? Why do you think that way? Not in a contentious mansion, uh, manner, but in a constructive one where you're not feeling like you're on trial, but rather feeling like you're getting input. Well, we don't talk, we don't refine them, and then we keep passing on and propagating partly formed, ill-formed sorts of convictions. So that has been my preoccupation, and what I wanna to do today is just really hit a thin edge of the wedge. If you want more information, pick up a book afterwards, chat with me, win some conviction podcast is out there, do anything you want like that. But today I wanna to have a pretty narrow focus just on this issue of how do we talk well with one another, the kingdom discipline, so to speak, of conversation. The Puritans called it conference. I can't use that word because it sounds like we're gonna go have some big convention. 
but they talked about conferencing as a verb, a thing that you did. I'm going to go conference with another person. And it was their language for talking about a really good conversation about important issues. So Ephesians chapter 4, um, you couldn't ask for simpler sermon outline than what Paul kind of gives us right here. That's why, I, you know, choose the cushy passages when you get an option, right? They say, hey, preach on anything you want. It's like, great. This is, a, this is an easy one. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, which is really 29 through 32 is where I will focus most of all just simply on, on verse 29. But the whole, the whole section talks about our language. But in verse 29 it says, um, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Point one, no corrupt talk. That's good, got that, write it down, you're good. Point two, but only such is good for building up. So there it is. No corrupting talk, but rather the kind of talk that builds others up. That's what Paul wants us to do. And that's what I just want to spend a little bit of time unpacking this morning. So first, regarding the no corrupting talk, uh, what are some of the kinds of talk that corrupt us. Well, as you look through the broader passage here, you realize you don't have to look far to get some hints about this. He begins by saying, uh, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak truth to his neighbor. So there's our first corrupting talk, is when we lie to each other, when we mislead one another. And believe it or not, that's easier to do than you think. Now, obviously, sometimes people just tell lies. Okay, fair enough. Don't do that. That would be prohibited by Paul's exhortation not to uh, convey falsehoods. But boy, there's a lot more to that notion than you might think. Um, here's one interesting suggestion that I have bumped into a lot in recent years, particularly in the context of kind of controversial issues, is that we speak falsehoods when we present a straw man of another person's position when we talk about those people who support Donald Trump, that Nancy Pelosi lady who says whatever she says, those people who talk about CRT, those people who talk about immigrants, whatever it may be, you identify this group of people and then you present what you're, they're saying as if it was a straw man argument. It's so transparently wrong that you think only an idiot could think that. And let me pause and ask, why did you put it that way? Because you wanted to create the impression that only an idiot could think that way. And I'm like, you know what? When you do that, in effect, you're saying a falsehood. You're saying that this person believes something completely ridiculous. And my bet is that they don't. I, I got a great introduction to this one time in my, one of my classes. I, I teach a class called Jesus, Lord of All. I call it the theology of everything because that's kind of what we do. And actually, at the beginning of the class, I have kind of three or four weeks that I always do the same, and then we kind of have a vote. Here's 20 topics we can do. What topics do you want to do? In the next six or seven weeks, we'll pick off, pick off some of these, these topics. Well, uh, in their papers, the, the papers that the students write, they have to pick some topic and kind of do a theology of whatever it is they're, they're thinking about. And one of the things is about creation that I suggested, and you could do any writings from, you know, the kind of climate change version of creation, to the evolution creation sort of discussion part, you know, whatever you want to do. Well, this guy wanted to do one about evolution. 
And they had to do research to, to find sources before they wrote the paper. They had to hand in a pre-paper with all those sources. And the, this one student was having a hard time finding the sources. And so he came up to me after class and said, yeah, I'm having a hard time finding it. And I'm, I said, well, you could look at these sort of things. And says, well, I just want one of those sources that lets people know how stupid evolutionists are. <laughs> and I'm like, well, let's just pause and savor that thought for a moment. I, you're, you're talking about people who win Nobel Prizes. Are you really thinking an accurate representation of their view would be one that makes them look stupid? I didn't say that exactly to him, but that's what was going on in my mind. And I'd like you to stop and think about the last time you went flaming off on somebody else's viewpoint is would that person actually recognize the rendition of their viewpoint that you just gave. There's a discipline that I encourage people to practice when they're having contentious conversations, and that's the discipline of achieving disagreement. That may sound like a piece of cake, right? We're really good at disagreeing. No, we're not. We're terrible at it. You know why? Because oftentimes, here's the thing I ask people to do. I says, look, you state the person you're disagreeing, get together with them, and you state what you think they think, and you don't get to say anything back until they nod their head and say, yes, now you've got it. Until you can state the other person's view in a way that they identified as their view, you don't know what their view is. So how could you possibly disagree? Because you don't know what they think yet. Achieving disagreement is a great way to honor Paul's command not to speak falsehood to one another, not to pass on things that are misleading. Try to pass on steel men rather than straw men. Try and give the best version of another person's viewpoint rather than the worst, and you'll become much closer to speaking the truth. Second thing that we discover in terms of the problematic, the corrupting talk, Paul goes on to describe uh, what we might call unbridled anger. Verse 26, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So Paul is concerned about kind of our angry raging. Not that we have anger, because he doesn't say don't ever be angry, but he says don't let the sun go down on your anger. The operating assumption is there's probably times, places, and reasons to become angry. But when you do, keep it bridled. Keep a bit in it, so to speak. Ride it like a horse with a, with a bridle so it's under control. I remember reading an article about, uh, it was a book uh, on, that included, among other things, this whole section on warfare. And they were talking about kind of the developing technology of warfare. This guy talked about horses. And he said, you have no idea what kind of a technological advance a horse was relative to warfare until you're standing in an open field and seeing an 800-pound war horse come rushing down straight at you. And I, I tried to picture that, and I thought, dang, that guy's right. Um, that would be absolutely mortifying. The unbridled horse of anger is sort of like that horse riding down across the field straight at you. 
And Paul's saying there's nothing wrong with horses. Just make sure they're bridled. Make sure they're still under control. A couple of bits of wisdom for doing that. Um, Jewish tradition. Uh, this is actually expressed some interesting writings in the uh, um, Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the uh, Essene community right around the time of Jesus. Um, they encourage community members not to let anger spill over to the next day. Um, and they said, they shall rebuke each man his brother according to the commandment and then bear no rancor from one day to the next. You may have to talk about this thing, but do it in a way such that you don't carry any of that rancor forward. Here's the way to think about it. Imagine after you had this conversation, the next thing you had to do was to serve that person communion. Oh, oh, that would be challenging. Well, good. That would be a great picture in your mind for saying what comes next. What comes next is communion. So let me communicate this in a way that the next thing we did could plausibly actually be coming together around the Lord's table, so to speak. Plutarch, so this is actually not just a Christian notion or a Jewish notion. A Greek philosopher from around the same time writes, we should next pattern ourselves after the Pythagoreans. So the, the, if you know Pythagoras' theorem, uh, he was actually part of a school of thought, almost a religion, uh, about 500 BC. It says they thought, um, even though they're not all related by birth, they shared a common discipline. If ever they were led by anger into recrimination against a brother, they never let the sun go down before they joined hands and embraced one another. Interesting thought. Could I shake hands and give a person a hug after this conversation? So these are just, I, I just want to stimulate your thinking a little bit to ask the question, am I having good conversations? Or am I falling into this drift of corrupting talk? Yeah, one of the reasons that people think that conversation isn't a spiritual discipline, and there's kind of two reasons. Number one is one problem that we don't practice it is number one, we don't think it's actually a discipline. And number two, we think we talk all the time. And here's my suggestion. It's a little bit like saying, imagine I were to say eating is a spiritual discipline or eating is a discipline. And a person says, oh, it's not a discipline. I eat all the time. And it's like, right, that's the problem. The problem is undisciplined eating, right? That's different than eating well. So eating well is a virtue. Eating well is a wonderful thing. Eating well is a thing you need to do. But the mere fact that you eat all the time doesn't mean that you do it. Likewise with conversation. The fact that you talk all the time doesn't mean that you're exercising the spiritual discipline of good conversation. Here's some of the ways that we fail to do that. Um, another thing Paul points out, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is skipping down now to verse 30. Um, interesting phrase, grieving God's spirit. And the thing that you want to do is realize, what is it that God's Spirit does for us? You think about God's Spirit as the counselor, the one who comes alongside us, the paraclete. He's the one who, when we're deeply troubled in our hearts and souls, says the Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groans too deep for words. So you get this image of the Spirit 
who cares deeply for us, who hovers over us, who speaks to us in our need. And then Paul says, some of the things you say make the Holy Spirit sad because you're treating this person over whom they are so concerned so poorly. James talks about the idea that, man, at one moment you're praising God, at the next moment you're cursing your brother who is made in God's image. From the same fountain should not come forth both fresh water and brackish. And so the picture he's giving us here is one of don't grieve the spirit by mistreating those who are made in God's image. Another one of my favorite passages is Proverbs 17.5. It says, he who mocks the poor insults his maker. And it's one of a whole set of these passages. You see this pattern, what I've already talked about, of, of calling to mind the fact that other human beings are made in God's image. And to a certain extent, the way you treat God should be the way you treat others. And to the extent you're treating others in a radically different way, you're training yourself to treat God badly too. And Paul says, don't grieve the spirit. Part of this is treating other people the way the spirit treats them. And then finally, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Um, these are great words. I, you know, I could do the whole sermon on this collection of words, right? These are, these are some real winners. One of my favorites is the word clamor. Um, I was reading a, a Greek dictionary, and the guy said, well, it's, it's really a word that's used of a verbal brawl. Isn't that a great image? A verbal brawl, which is to say the internet. <laughs> it, it's crazy. Who knew? You know, they had this back then, apparently. But, but that sense of just this ongoing cacophony, the other thing that they've actually, they use this term for, the braying of an ass. I'll just sort of let that metaphor dangle out there. And another uh, thing is the, the cry a woman makes in labor is sometimes called that kind of clamor. And the idea of it is, is it's kind of an eruption without content, really. There's nothing there but the scream and the clamor and the noise. It isn't like, oh, let's turn down the, uh, the bass and maybe we can pick up the treble. It's like there's no treble there. They're just screaming and shouting. And that's the kind of decay we often see in our discourse. And the side effect of that is really interesting. I've done a fair bit of stuff on polarization and one group that I've worked with has this wonderful thing, it's kind of a speedometer that says, think about where you are on the, on the speedometer of polarization. It says on the one side, when you meet another person who kind of has a different viewpoint, you begin with a, an attitude perhaps like respect and appreciation, say, hey, the, the noble opposition, so to speak, or this person, hey, they're a good person, even though they see things differently. So respect and ad for admiration. And then as you get a little bit more conflict-oriented, it's like, well, we'll still give them basic respect. Back to this whole image of God thing. Yeah, read that verse. Okay, fine. We'll give them some basic respect. There's like, you know, your, your morsel of basic. Don't spend it all in one place, you know, sort of feeling about your respect. And then you hit the point of, well, kind of just pitying them. It's like this poor benighted fool. How can they think this way? And then the needle moves over to disdain, to use a phrase that became famous a few years ago, they're deplorable. 
And then finally, it moves all the way to the point of hatred, where they're no longer part of the people who are loyal to the allegiance, but they have become an enemy. Uh, this was used in particular context of political discord, and so people move along the spectrum from thinking their brothers and, well, their fellow citizens are actually citizens of the same country to thinking they're literally enemies. And what do you do with an enemy? Well, you shoot them, right? Treason. When they're behind enemy lines. An analogy I use a lot is it's, it's one thing, even like in warfare, if you find a guy from the other side who's behind your lines, well, you'll capture him if he's in the uniform of the other side, you know. You'll, you'll capture him and become a prisoner of war. But what if you find a guy who's on the other side who's wearing your uniform? Well, then you treat him as a spy, and spies are shot at dawn. You know what happens when we find someone in our church that's advocating a position that we really don't like and think belongs to the other side? We don't just want them to be a prisoner of war. We want to shoot them at dawn. Malice, wrath, anger. And when we talk to them, it sounds like clamor. Those are the tendencies that we end up drifting to that Paul cautions us against. And really, a lot of this is a plea for self-awareness. Stopping and thinking, is that rising? Is malice rising in my soul as I'm talking to this person right now? If so, I better be careful and tap it back down. Now, in the midst of all this, we kind of began with the falsehood thing, and I, I gave you kind of a good starter for thinking a little bit about that. I'd like to unpack a really interesting, uh, or offer a, a really interesting unpacking of this notion of falsehood. And it comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism. In case you want to look it up later, it's question 144. So yes, it is the larger catechism. It's like the downright humongous catechism. But in the midst of this catechism, they, they both unpack the, the, the Westminster Confession. But then at the end of that, they unpack the, uh, the Ten Commandments and a few other key ordinances of the church. So they have these questions that you, you teach the catechumen about. Here is their unpacking of the Ninth Commandment, of the commandment that forbids bearing false witness. Here's the things that they say are, quote, what are the duties required in the ninth commandment? What are the things you're supposed to do in light of that? And these are just a few excerpts. It's, like I say, a larger catechism. Um, preserving and promoting the truth and the good name of our neighbor. Speaking the truth and only the truth in all matters of judgment and justice. Interesting phrase, only the truth. A charitable esteem of our neighbors loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name and sorrowing for and covering all of their infirmities, freely acknowledging their gifts, graces, and defending their innocency, readiness to receive a good report and unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning your neighbor, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers. Wow. A friend of mine wrote a blog post not long ago on the COVID vaccine. And he just suggested, hey, I think it was entitled, Love Your Neighbor, 
uh, get the COVID vaccine or something like that. It was a, you know, kind of a simple, snappy title. And of course, the main point he was arguing for is, is, look, even if you yourself are not that concerned about COVID, it can be a beneficial thing for the sake of your neighbor that you get this vaccine. Now, I have no interest in weighing in on this vaccine debate. That's not why I'm here this morning. This is an illustration of something different than the COVID vaccine itself, okay? Just to be clear on where I'm going. But that was the logic of what, what he shared. And I would argue that that was a reasonable enough teaching, right? Uh, Paul says to test every teaching. So I look at this and I go, well, good, this is a teaching. What should we do with it? We should test it. We don't have to just swallow it whole, right? We, we should test it. But Paul says test every teaching. He doesn't say torch every teacher. <laughs> so I think there might have been an alliteration problem here. And these were some of the comments that came back to my friend about this, you know, love your neighbor, get the COVID vaccine line of argument. What next? Love thy neighbor and get an abortion? It has about the same level of argument and logic. That's what, I'm just reading these, okay? This is an awesome insight on scripture. Every time the New Testament reads the word, says the word love, we should translate it, get the shot. Vacuous virtue signaling, unfactual, uninformed, logical fallacies, bad hermeneutics. Here's another one. Who would have thunk that seminary profs would turn liberal Pharisee? Boo! <laughs> Why? <laughs> Pretty eloquent thought there. Boo! I hadn't thought of that. Boo! Um, why would you take a stance on this? You know this is political, right? And you know the shot doesn't work. Uh, next one. You're on some ridiculous high horse to twist the words of Jesus in such a disgusting way. This is about the worst article in unbiblical post I've seen. Jesus would not take the vax, he'd heal people. Other posts accuse my friend of being stupid, woke, liberal, ignorant, and arrogant. Now, I'm not gonna take the time to respond to all these you know, logical fallacies or other issues that may come up in this protest. I simply wanna make the point of, wow, Number one, I'm not sure this would be a good example of what I talked about earlier about giving the steel man instead of the straw man. Whatever they're responding to, it doesn't sound very much like this guy's argument. I happen to know my friend who has a PhD in Semitic languages from, from uh, UCLA. I've known him for 40 years. He's actually not that stupid. <laughs> Believe it or not, he's really not. And so you, you see this sort of drift but here's the other thing. Take a moment and savor those phrases from the Westminster Shorter Longer <laughs> Catechism. Charitably esteeming our neighbor, preserving and promoting the good name of our neighbor, rejoicing in our neighbor's good name, covering our neighbor's infirmities, freely acknowledging our neighbor's gifts and graces. Does that even remotely resemble the language of these posts? And I wonder sometimes if we think there's like an official Facebook exemption from the ninth commandment. <laughs> Thou shalt not bear false witness except on Facebook. Um, and I'm like, you know, I, I don't think there is. And I don't think there's an exemption if you're really upset about what the person said. I don't think there's actually even an exemption if that person is your enemy. Because what in the world does Jesus say about how you treat your enemy? 
I think we're supposed to love them. And all of these statements from the Westminster Shorter, Longer Catechism <laughs> instruction are examples of people saying, yeah, this is what it looks like to actually love your neighbor. If you want a real kick, check out their version of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. You know how Jesus talks about calling your brothers a fool is analogous to killing them? I could have drawn this whole thing from the prohibition against murder. Because in effect, we're murdering another person's character. Wow. So here's the deal. My exhortation and encouragement is to take your conversation seriously. Take Paul seriously when he gives this, con this uh, um, caution against what he calls corrupting um, speech. Now, flip side of this is the good side. And uh, I, I would point out in general, the, the gutter to which we drift in our conversations is usually not the positive but the negative. In other words, if you imagine a car going down the road, if you take your hands off the wheel, most roads are crowned, right? And so the middle of the road's a little higher than the gutters on the side because that allows water to drain off rather than pool on the road. It's a brilliant idea. If you ever travel to certain other countries in the world that never discovered the idea of crowning roads, you'll get a real appreciate for a good crowned road. But here's the deal. Um, when you take your hands off the road, that means you almost always ver right into a gutter as opposed to ver veering left across the freeway, which is also a good thing because that way you just go off the road instead of have a head-on collision. Uh, let me just make the observation that in conversations, veering to the gutter is always veering to the negative. It's really easy to veer to the negative things and you have to pull the wheel to move to the positive. It requires active effort to think positively. I was uh, reading a, a something online this week and uh, they were talking about Tim Keller. And a lot of you guys probably know Tim Keller, pastor at uh, uh, church in, in Manhattan. Um, and he made the comment, Tim, Tim Keller is the best example I've ever seen of someone who consistently covers other people with the gospel. Never once did I see Tim tearing another person down to their face on the internet or through gossip. Instead, he seemed to assume the good in people. He'd say being forgiven and affirmed by Jesus frees us for catching other people doing good. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Hey, what are you going to do this morning? I'm going to go out and try and catch somebody else doing good. And then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to post it on Facebook. Ha <laughs> ha, take that, Cosmos. Uh, that's the idea that Tim Keller is exhibiting here. And I go, what a wonderful example of what we've just been talking about done on the positive side, right? I'm saying, what can I find in my neighbor that's worthy of esteeming? And let me esteem it. In fact, let me go wild and esteem it publicly. Let me look at a person who I'd normally view to be my enemy and say, you know what? I disagree with them about a lot of things, but you know what they just said here was really good. Was really good. Let me be the person who goes out in the morning and tries to catch other people doing good. A wonderful, wonderful discipline. Now, let me talk a little bit more about this notion of Puritan conference. I mentioned that at the outset. And like I say, this whole idea that I'm saying conversation is actually a kingdom practice, a spiritual discipline, is in no small part drawn from 400 years ago the thinking of Puritans about the idea of conference. And they said, you know what? 
we as Christians are supposed to be people who live out the Bible. We don't just learn the Bible, we live the Bible. We don't just learn theology, we do theology lived. And living out theology is kind of tricky. You don't always know what that looks like in a given situation. So we tend to come up with ideas, and that's just peachy, but you know what's really helpful is to talk with other people about those ideas, about how we live out the scriptures faithfully. And the place where they did that was what they called conference. And pastors would do that with one another. Lay people would do that with one another. In fact, it was frequently most commonly done among what you might call peers. So it wasn't like a spiritual director thing per se, where you like go to the guy who knows more than you do for the input or something. It wasn't pastoral counseling or something to get the last word. It's like, no, no, we're just going to sit down and process this idea together. I'm a businessman, this other person's a businessman, and I'm suddenly perplexed. What is a fair profit, and what does that really look like biblically? I don't know that your pastor is better equipped to answer that than your fellow businessman, right? So talk to your fellow businessman. So that was kind of their notion, and the idea here is that you're talking about spiritually significant things. You're not just shooting off about whatever is going on. You're not just talking about the Lakers. Um, but you're, you're picking up something that actually matters to exactly where you live. And let me point out, unfortunately perhaps, that a prohibition against talking about religion and politics is a really bad plan on that because we actually live with religion in the midst of a political society, right? You can't really dodge the bullet. So you need places to actually refine those convictions. You need to help make them just a little bit better, to think about them a little bit more clearly. Um, and so part of what Paul commands, interestingly enough, is that we're supposed to have this speech that is imparting grace to others as fits the occasion. So it's really good to stop thinking, what are the occasions that we actually confront? How can we speak to one another that help us confront the occasions that our life gives us well? How do we do that? Conversation in that sense is one of the keys to doing that. And let me just give you a little bit of a thought. One of the things that I've discovered when I talk to people about kind of talking about their convictions is this huge anxiety that if I bring up my conviction and it isn't perfectly well defended, somebody's going to jump on me, even if it's a fellow Christian. And I'll feel really embarrassed and so I don't want to talk about it. Uh, I think the concern is legitimate. I totally get it. Here's a good thought. Let me give you a cooking metaphor here. Um, there's two things I assume you don't want. Number one is you don't want to be grilled, right? You want someone to slap you on the grill and turn up the heat. That doesn't sound attractive. The other thing you don't want is a half-baked conviction, right? You don't want to be thinking something that's kind of literally half-baked. And so what you really want is people who don't grill the person, but they do help you bake the conviction. They help you think about it a little bit more deeply. They ask probing questions because they actually want to hear the answers. And this is where the final thing that Paul talks about is the kind of conversation that gives grace to your hearers. These are the sort of things we want to do is not just to grill them, but to grace them, right? Give them a blessing that you leave a person bigger than you found them. Um, have you ever been in a conversation with someone who makes you feel small? Do you want to go back and chat with them again when you're done? No. So a good way to end conversations is make other people feel small. 
A good way to keep them going is make them feel bigger. At the end, of, you know, maybe someone's asking a question to you, and you just respond saying, you know what I really appreciate about you? You make me think better. Oh, you can do that with a non-believer who asks you a hard question about the faith. We think, oh, I've got to come up with the answer. You don't. You'd say, boy, that beats the heck out of me. And what I really appreciate about you is you help me think better. Wow, what have you done? You've made them bigger. You've given them grace. Another thing you want to do is leave them more hopeful than you found them. Um, if you can't see a way forward for them to help them get better, to help them move forward, odds are you're not really in a position to correct them yet. If you can't see hope, you probably haven't thought long enough for the person because I don't think anyone is hopeless. And if they walk away from your conversation feeling hopeless, you've probably not had a good conversation. One other thing about imparting grace, leave them more curious than you found them. Be curious about their thoughts. Probe them. Um, a thing that I talk about is be a rhino, be a chimp, not a rhino. Uh, I'll do this quicker if I just read this. Um, if someone else's convictions don't make sense, it's probably because you either don't understand their backstory or perhaps their conviction itself. Your first goal should be to understand. That means you need to be a chimp, not a rhino. Rhinoceroses are notoriously short-sighted. It is said they can't tell the difference between a tree and a human being from 50 feet away. Um, and that explains their aggressive behavior. If they don't understand it, they ram it. It's hard on both trees and humans. It's not even that great for the rhinoceros, right? Um, when chimps, in contrast, are very different. When chimps see something they don't recognize, they go investigate. They pick it up, they prod it, they play with it. They put it on their heads to see if it'll fit. If they decide it's not for them, well, they set it down and pick up something else. But at least everyone's had a good time and can walk away without having been rammed. If your brother or sister in Christ has a personal conviction you don't understand, be curious investigate. Ask questions that you're really interested in getting answered. Don't ram them. Be a chimp, not a rhino. Extend grace to those you talk to. So yes, in short, conversation really is a spiritual discipline. And even if we do it all the time, that doesn't mean we do it disciplined. And so let me encourage you to follow the wisdom Paul gives here in cultivating the grace of good conversation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of one another. We thank you that we can talk to another, and usually we enjoy talking to one another. But Lord, we do pray that you give us wisdom as we do that. Lord, truly, help us be people who are chimps, not rhinos, who are interested in not condemning. Um, and Lord, help us as well to be people who are willing to have our own con convictions kind of prodded and probed and refined because none of us think that clearly in the absence of input from others. So Lord, we pray for conversations of grace and we pray you would give us that grace in Jesus' name, amen.